0: And he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, for me and for the gospel, will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So Lord, I pray on behalf of all of us that you would take this word and plant it like a seed in our hearts and let it grow to produce 30 and 60 and 100 times what was sown. In Jesus' name, amen. Mary Carr, who is a brilliant American poet and storyteller, opens her memoir, Lit, with a letter to her son. This is an excerpt from that letter. However long I've been granted sobriety, however many hours I logged in therapist's office and the confessional, I've still managed to hurt you. And not just with the divorce when you were five, with its attendant shouting matches and slammed doors, just as my mother vanished from my young life into a madhouse, so did I vanish when you were a toddler. Having spent much of my life trying to plumb her psychic mysteries, I now find myself occupying her chair as plummy, believe me. It's a discomforting sensation. You see, Mary was the child of a broken marriage who then grew up with an alcoholic single mother, and in spite of her best intentions, she became an alcoholic single mother in the wake of her own broken marriage. And what she seems to be acknowledging in this beautiful and vulnerable and heartbreaking letter is that in spite of our best efforts and intentions, we will all wake up one day to discover that we've become a certain kind of mother certain kind of father, a certain kind of spouse, a certain kind of son or daughter, brother or sister, a certain kind of friend, a certain kind of coworker, a certain kind of neighbor. And it will not be our best intentions that choose for us who we become. It won't be our willpower or our discipline or even our circumstances. It will be your rabbi. Yes, your rabbi. Because everyone is a disciple. Everyone is following someone or something, by which I mean everyone has chosen an aim for their life and is aiming at something. And whoever or whatever that rabbi is, is forming you into its image. Do you know who your rabbi is? When Jesus walked around the earth for 33 years, his primary invitation was not listen to me or consider my teaching. It wasn't even believe in me, follow me. That's what he said. To two groups of brother fishermen, follow me. To a tax collector punching the clock for the empire, follow me. To a demonized prostitute, follow me. A respected priest who met up with him at midnight, follow me. A a man making funeral arrangements for his father, a wealthy young success story, a future betrayer, and a guilty betrayer in in the wake of his own uh, betrayal, follow me. Now, in the first century, this invitation was called discipleship. And when we use that word in the church today, we mostly use it as a verb, right? Are you being discipled or are you discipling someone? And that's code for meeting up with someone to do a book study at an unreasonably fancy coffee shop, right? (laughs) And that's great. I'm all for that. But that's not the way discipleship is used biblically. Historically, disciple is a noun, not a verb. It wasn't an activity you do or a class you take, it was an identity, it's who you are. Disciples are people who committed their whole selves to a rabbi's life and teaching. They listened to a rabbi teach, they considered their ideas, but they also followed that rabbi in the most literal sense. They went where the rabbi went, ate what the rabbi ate, slept where the rabbi slept, and lived how they lived. The aim of discipleship was to take on the whole of a rabbi's person, to embody their life as my very own. The English word we have for it today that's closest is apprentice. Because an apprentice is someone who's learning a trade from a master. And to learn a trade, you do sit and talk and learn, but you also have to practice and and get your own hands dirty with doing what the master does. For instance, if you're apprenticing under a mechanic to learn to take apart an engine, you're eventually going to have to get your own hands greasy in order to learn the trade. And Jesus was a first century rabbi with disciples. Jesus definitely sat with and taught his disciples, but he also made them participants. He sent them out with authority to do the works that he had been doing. And in the end, he even commissioned them to go and make disciples of Their own. In a word, that's discipleship. And that's the invitation of Jesus. It's an invitation that still stands for you and me today. Discipleship to Jesus in our time and place might sound like this practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. Now, that's our mission. That's what we're about around here. It's what we've always been about. It's what we're always going to be about. That's the foundation of this house. And today is an invitation to join, or maybe to rejoin, meaning actively consider, and then choose willingly to step into that very mission. But we're gonna break it down the way that we always do. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. That is the three-part summary of the ancient, still-standing definition called discipleship. So first, be with Jesus. Look with me at Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter three. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus says here clearly that he's going to teach his disciples everything he knows. He's going to send them out with authority to do the things they've seen him doing. But first, he calls them that they might be with him, to be with Jesus. This is where discipleship starts. And there's nothing more uh, important, nothing more meaningful in the human experience, nothing that communicates more deeply to the human heart than the simple four-letter word, with. Uh, When we're celebrating and when we're grieving, we want to be with those meaningful to our stories we're celebrating a birthday or a graduation or a retirement party, we, we wanna be with people. To receive a wedding invitation is for someone to say to you, I'm going to be with this other person forever and we want you to be with us to mark the occasion. And when we're grieving, words are mostly hollow tropes, right? But presence says what words can't. Whose bedside have you sat by when their breaths grew short and so did their hours? or who held you because she left you, or he's gone now, or it's your first Christmas without your mother. You see, with says more, so, is so much more powerful than the most eloquent version of, I'm so sorry for your loss. With, there's more to it than that, but it never gets better than that. The somewhat cheesy but undeniable truth is this, the best part of following Jesus is Jesus. To be a disciple means that at some point in your story, this happened to you. You were found by the good shepherd when you had no idea that you were lost. You were renamed when the only name you had ever known is the fragile identity you created for yourself. You were seen in your nakedness, the nakedness you had gotten so used to covering up, you didn't know there was another way to live. And it's been 22 years, or roughly 8,000 days, since that happened to me. And the cumulative effect of the journey since, of all the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys, of the paradises I've lived in with Jesus and the deserts I've drugged my feet through so long I thought they would never end as this. I'm 8,000 days more certain nothing matters more than Jesus. To know him as he truly is, to hear his voice calling to me again today and to walk behind him always wherever that leads me, He is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in a field. In John 1, the disciples, the first time they see Jesus, they ask him this simple question, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now that word stay is the Greek meno, which can be translated as stay, but it can equally be translated into English and is elsewhere as remain or abide. Read, can I be with you, Rabbi? Rabbi. Now, on the opposite end of John's gospel, in chapter 15, on the final night of Jesus' life, the last time the disciples will see him before he goes to the cross, Jesus returns the favor. He says this to them, remain in me as I also remain in you. Meno in me as I also menno in you. At one end of the story, disciples are asking to be with Jesus. At the other end of the story, Jesus is promising to be with his disciples, even when his presence is hard to decipher. And this sets Jesus apart from every other rabbi in history up to this point, is that he says to us, my commitment to you will always outrun your commitment to me. And this is the first battle of discipleship, and it's the one that we never stop fighting, and that nothing will be more contested in your spiritual life than your assuredness of the unbreakable love that the rabbi has for you. And the enemy's great ploy in your life will always be to convince you that you must earn what you've already been given or hide away in the very shame that you've already been freed from. Either one will stall you on this discipleship journey. And so Jesus prays for you and I. Uh, On that same conversation, in the last night of his life, he prays this. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, when Jesus defined eternal life, It was not first and foremost about duration, about how long we live. First, it was about relation, to whom we live. Be with Jesus. See, there's so much that I don't know. But I am 8,000 days more certain of this one thing, that nothing matters more than Jesus. To be with him. To know his presence here with me. And to follow him wherever that leads me however many days I get to drag my feet behind him. So sell everything you've got and buy this field because the treasure is worth more than you could ever imagine. But, of course, there is the unintended consequence. Every great offer comes with an unintended consequence, right? For instance, I have an iPhone that allows me to store contacts for anyone. But, I can't call my mom on someone else's phone, right? In fact, if the battery dies on this thing, I don't know how to get around the city that I live in or where to find a cup of coffee or even be able to pay for the cup of coffee if I were to come across one, right? The iPhone has given me accessibility to so many things that weren't there before, but it's also made me entirely helpless if the battery ever dies. That's the unintended consequence. And the unintended consequence of being with Jesus is that he sticks us with others. (laughs) You see, Jesus' 12 closest disciples, they relationally bridged every socioeconomic, ideological, and political line that existed in first-century Israel. He called blue-collar workers, tax collectors, and zealots into the same inner circle. And that's beautiful for us to reflect back on the radical diversity of that group. But for those who actually got called by Jesus... They had to work through real tension in order to follow this rabbi. And so if you're looking for a solitary, just me, my journal, and my earbuds with an Icelandic ambient playlist (laughs) version of following Jesus, you will not find it on the pages of Scripture. A solo spiritual journey is a modern invention, and there's very many very legitimate grievances that have been levied against the modern church and I understand that. But I also know that even Jesus himself, who was a harsh critic of the corruption of the temple of his own time, was still a participant within that very temple. That he immersed himself in relationships within the temple. That he went to the temple for prayer, that he added his own voice to the teaching of that temple. You see, what the life of Jesus unmistakably tells us is this, that there is no version of being with Jesus that doesn't come with others as well. Including a few others that I would dismiss from the group if I could. In Sebastian Younger's fascinating tiny little book, Tribe, he makes the case that society is producing individuals who are surrounded but not with. That we, for the first time in history, in suburban and urban Western societies, encounter people all throughout the day who are not neighbors to us but strangers. And that experience, which has become so common to you and me, is actually historically brand new and psychologically untested. He goes on to make the case that the evidence that this is bad for us psychologically is overwhelming as the rates of mental illness soar in the societies in the world today where this is the norm. In the biblical story, when is the first time that God declared something not good? It wasn't sin. It was before the fall in a state of paradise. It is not good that man should be alone. You see, the biblical picture of paradise, of heaven on earth, of human flourishing happens in community, not in isolation. Jesus' 12 were not an ideal community, but they were a community that could shape one another. And so maybe Jesus knew what he was doing when he called them not to the pipe dream of community, but to the community that produced real tension within them so that it could shape them. And maybe Jesus still knows what he's doing when he calls us not to our hand-picked ideal community, not to the pipe dream community of our imagination, but to the real community that you'll find in a place like this one. A community that you'd probably dismiss a person or two from if you could, but also a community that can shape you. You see, what can sometimes feel like an unintended consequence at first is an indescribable gift in the end. So be with Jesus And then secondly, become like Jesus. If you happen to be up late one night flipping through the channel sometime near the turn of the century, you might remember a little product called the Abtronic. (laughs) Which was essentially a corset that you wore that toned your abs while you watched reruns of Fresh Prince. Now, the advertising strategy for this product was simple. For a half hour, they would show you clips of different people that all looked like Brad Pitt from Fight Club essentially saying in every way they could, this could be you. So obviously, my wife, Kirsten, who was 14 at the time, saw this ad, grabbed her mom's credit card, and made five easy payments of $19.99 to invest in this very product. When it came in the mail, she unwrapped it with great anticipation, wore it for about 10 seconds, then had to take it off, because it literally electrocutes you to make your muscles pulse. And so it became a contest among her and all of her friends, and her older brother and all of his friends. Who could wear it the longest? The record to this day is 30 seconds. As a result, no one began to look like Brad Pitt. But that ad, it was built on these two assumptions. First, you want washboard abs. Second, you do not want to diet and do sit-ups. So they offered a shortcut. But the truth, discovered very quickly by anyone who attempted that shortcut, was this. There is no quick fix solution. That the people in this infomercial did not start looking like this by wearing the abtronic and eating deep fried starches. They did so by eating celery sticks and doing crunches. Anyone who got sucked into the purchase found that out quickly. And we live at a time in history when the church has become so much better at advertising Jesus than we have at following him. And the result are things like this, the the recent Atlantic article titled Listening to Young Atheists, in which one person said, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life and you would want to change the lives of others. I haven't seen too much of that. See, what he's saying is something like this. The story of Jesus, if it's true... It's the greatest story ever told. The thing that makes me hesitate is the wide gap between the story and the actual practice of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Christianity without discipleship is a hollow story. It's weightless and flimsy, something like a fairy tale or an infomercial. It might be the greatest story ever told, but until it's embodied and lived, it's hard for me to believe that it's true. Jesus' invitation was never to a shortcut. He did not offer some abtronic version of spirituality. Jesus' invitation was something more like this, a broad door and a narrow way. So look back with me at our teaching text in Mark chapter eight. Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple. Now other translations read, if anyone wants to be my disciple. Jesus was a rabbi with an unusually broad door. First century discipleship worked this way. There were three levels of ancient Hebrew education. There was Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and Talmudim which were like high school, undergrad, and grad school in ancient Israel. Only there were way fewer schools making this much, much more competitive. Only the best and brightest, like the Summa Cum Laude from the most prestigious Talmudim, could even get a rabbi to look at their resume. To be a disciple was like getting accepted with a full ride to an Ivy League school or landing the dream residency on your first day out of college or or being on the Forbes 30 under 30 list of first century Israel and then Jesus shows up saying if anyone wants to be my disciple anyone that's what he said And his disciples included more than just the 12. There was the inner circle that was the three, then the larger group of the 12. But we also know that there's a larger group called the 72. And of course, what all the gospel writers refer to as the crowds, which would have been a much broader group of disciples of Jesus that included male and female disciples, uh, the rich and the poor, political liberals and conservatives. So the door is broad, but the way is narrow. Matthew chapter 7, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now the word that Jesus uses here translated as road is the Greek hodos, which can also be translated as way. You'll find that word over a hundred times in the New Testament. Sixty-two of them are in the Gospels, most of which come right off the lips of Jesus. So according to Jesus, and he's remarkably clear about this, there's more than one way on offer. And there's a broad one that leads to death while a narrow one that leads to life, which begs the question, is Jesus talking about now or eternity? Like, is this about how I live today or is this some sort of cryptic where I'm going to end up in the afterlife sort of statement? To which the answer is yes. It's both. Like it so often is with Jesus, his line dividing uh, the here and now from the, the coming and not yet is much finer than ours tends to be. According to Jesus, there's more than one way on offer, and plenty of people are walking along the broad road, which is easy to find, but ultimately leads to death. It chips away at our true person, dignity, joy, identity, and freedom with each and every step. But there's also a narrow way, and it requires more intention to walk this way. It's harder to walk, but it leads to life with every step, increasingly joyful, dignifying and freeing. See, it was just that, the narrow way of Jesus that his earliest followers were known for. It's what they were even named by. Hodos is the word we read in Acts chapter 9, when the church is referred to as the way, and Christians were first called followers of the way. It's the word we read again in Acts 19, 22, and 24, when discipleship to Jesus was summed up as the way. This is how central the narrow way was to Jesus' earliest followers. They were known for the way they lived, the narrow path they walked, the countercultural lifestyle that they took on like their rabbi. Hebrews chapter 5 says it this way, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity. You see, grace is the generative force that brings us into this new life. But that grace is always meant to mature. Grace grows up. The human way of development is really familiar to each and every one of us, right? The way it's meant to work is that a child comes into a home where they receive the unconditional love of their parents. This is where life begins. And that love never goes away. But that love is also meant to grow up and mature someone, to provide the confines within which they can develop in a healthy way. Uh, it's meant to help us learn to feed ourselves and dress ourselves and cooperate with others without having consequences and supervision. And then one day, many of us will have children of our own and we'll take this sort of love and we'll direct it entirely at another. Now, the way of spiritual development happens exactly the same way. We are reborn by grace and nourished in God's unconditional love, a kind of love that never goes away, and a kind of love that's meant to give us the freedom to mature and develop. A love that grows us up to tame our desires and curate our appetites toward creativity and life, not destruction and death. And then ultimately, that love leads to a sacrificial, self-giving way of loving others. Jesus' invitation was to a broad door and a narrow way. The broad door is called grace, and it's wide open. Everyone's invited. Be with Jesus. The narrow way of growing up in that grace, though, does require effort, intention, and participation on our part become like Jesus. And if you're squirming that that might sound just a touch legalistic to you, you should know that I'm just the messenger here. I mean, take it up with Peter, one of the 12 who walked day in and day out with Jesus. He wrote this in his, his letter, Second Peter. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith, and then goes on to list virtues that come on us by walking the narrow way of Jesus. Make every effort. It sounds like that famous line from Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Likewise, the apostle John says that walking the narrow way is how we communicate love back to Jesus, because it's how we actively place our trust in him. Now, I know this language isn't popular today, but the startling truth is this, Jesus is interested in behavior modification. He actually does invite us to walk an admittedly narrow path. The unique thing about Jesus is not that he's uninterested in behavior. That's not loving, right? If if I'm not interested in my kids' behavior, then I willingly allow them to do things that are destructive to themselves and others. That's not love. The unique thing about Jesus is that it's grace, not merit or demand, that incites maturity. It's that our behavior changes by love, not by fear. That's what set Jesus apart. Jesus could not be less interested in legalism, but he couldn't be more relentless when it comes to transformation. His door is wide, but his way is narrow. It's harder to walk, and it requires greater intention, but it leads to life. I guess you could sum it up this way. Say it with me. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. I came up with that this week. <laughs> Hope you guys like it. I think it could catch on. I'm thinking of writing a book or two. <laughs> spiritual maturity is meant to free us, but sadly, many of us find ourselves in this warped view of spiritual maturity that entraps us instead. So I want to show you the cycle of the normal Christian life, how most of us live. It goes something like this. Inspiration, try harder, guilt disillusioned and the critical error in this cycle is step number two try harder enough messing around this week's going to be different that really connected with me and I really mean it this time I'm taking it seriously I'm going to try harder that method never works and there's a couple of reasons for that the first one is because willpower is a depleting resource That's why most people find it easier to say no to a donut in the morning than they do to a glass of wine with dinner or a scoop of ice cream before bed. It's because willpower wears down throughout the day. It's a depleting resource. Secondly, it's because we mature by training, not by trying, right? If you want washboard abs, or to write a novel, or to learn to play the piano, trying harder won't help. Gritting your teeth is not gonna help you tickle the ivories. But training or practice will. By training, or I'm sorry, by trying, I really mean it this time. You will just lead yourself to more failure, giving way to more guilt, giving way to deeper disillusionment. But by practice, that converts the same inspiration into freedom and life. And so I want to replace this common cycle with a true one, a biblical one. Here's a cycle of spiritual maturity. See, practice, practice blessing. C is all about the wonders of God. It's often called revelation. Something new is discovered or seen about God, who he is, who I am, and what the good life is. I then convert that into practice. Every new revelation of God, every glimpse of who he is and what his kingdom is about, I am then meant to inhabit, to take on, to live into as a practice. Make every effort to And that can look like one of the classic spiritual disciplines, like a greater commitment to prayer or scripture or fasting or Sabbath. But it can also look much more unique and personal, like simplifying my possessions or committing myself to this one friendship or deciding I'm definitely going to get eight hours of sleep a night. Richard Foster defines spiritual practice as a way of placing yourself where God can bless you. See, the practices in and of themselves are not powerful. If we fall into the illusion that our practice is what transforms us, then we take our eyes off God and we miss out on the blessing. And people who live like this, they often become very devout, but devout in an unattractive way. Like you respect their devotion, but you also don't want to become like them. You ever know anyone like that? Spiritual practice does not make God like me more. It doesn't make God do more of what I think God should be doing. Spiritual practice makes my life a more open space for God to inhabit. It is an anchor that holds me in the place that God can bless me. And sometimes that blessing comes immediate and easily. And other times it takes a lot of waiting and perseverance. But spiritual practice is always an anchor to blessing. Now, blessing, once we've seen something about God and inhabited it by practice, he pours out his blessing on us and we get to experience more of the life of Jesus. And that blessing is sometimes personal, sometimes communal, but it's almost always some of both. So just in your own imagination, go back to last year, to September 2021, and then walk through to this moment 12 months later. What new have you seen about God in the last year? What have you discovered? And then how have you inhabited that discovery? How have you participated in it? And then what blessing, meaning what new expression or new life or new love has emerged or is emerging from that? You see, here's the best part about the spiritual journey is it's cyclical, not linear. And so every blessing just gives way to greater discovery. right? We see something new about God, we inhabit it with our lives, we take on more of the life of Jesus as a result. We see something new about God again, we inhabit it with our lives, we take on more of the life of Jesus as a result, and it keeps going and going and going until blessing is all that we live in forever when he makes heaven and earth one again. I love the refreshing honesty of Dallas Willard. He says this, Anyone who says that it is easy to follow Jesus is a liar. He himself says the way is narrow, but nothing we forego in the cause of Christ. Wealth, popularity, kudos, not even our very lives can come anywhere close to the return. The price we pay to follow Jesus, whatever it might be, will acquire for us the most astounding bargain of our lives. And that's Jesus' invitation. It's a broad door, a narrow way, and the bargain of our lives. So be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then lastly, do what Jesus did. The aim of the spiritual journey, the destination is to become love. Look with me one more time at Mark 8. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, Jesus seems to be saying that you discover the full, free, abundant, true kind of life when you take everything you have and everything you are and turn it into a gift for others. Now, practically, there's two ways that we become a gift to others, that we become love. There's supernatural love and there's suffering love. So first, supernatural love. I mean, there's no denying that there was a supernatural power to the way that Jesus expressed the Father's love. I mean, this guy goes around healing the terminally ill, delivering the demon-possessed, the handicapped stand up and begin tap dancing with a single word from his lips. Jesus' supernatural ministry is not haphazard magic either. His miracles are signs of the in-breaking kingdom of God. And it's very, very hard, I would actually argue that it's impossible, to believe the claims of Jesus, but deny the miraculous works of Jesus. Many have tried, though. Most famously, Thomas Jefferson was quite fond of Jesus as a spiritual guru, but he wasn't buying the, like, supernatural healer bits. And so he took the Bible and actually just cut out every instance of a supernatural miracle from the life of Jesus, and then was left with a Bible that was so tattered it would not even hold together. You see, Jesus' teaching and his power are intertwined. They are inseparable in the biblical story. And so the question that we have to ask is, how did Jesus do what he did? Where did his power come from? And one popular answer that's emerged in the last 300 years or so of church history is this. It's because he was the son of God. The the miracles of Jesus are proof that he was God's son. They're proof to validate the truth claims of his teaching, which makes sense, right? The only problem with that idea is it's not the biblical understanding, and it's not the historic position of the Christian church, The biblical teaching is everything Jesus did came by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before his baptism, when all three synoptic gospels say the Spirit descended on him, Jesus did not utter a word of teaching or work a single miracle. After his baptism, the power of God is flowing out of him in every variety, all that came from this one source, then the Spirit descended on him. And the historic position of the Christian church has been the same, that if you reach as far back in history as you can to those earliest followers and those very first councils, the consensus was Jesus' power came through the, through the Holy Spirit. And the reason that matters for us is because near the end of Jesus' life, he started talking a whole lot about leaving and sending. I'm going away, but it's for your good because I'm sending you my spirit, In John 14, he even went so far as to say, you're going to do even greater things than you've seen me doing. And then in John 20, he appears to his disciples in resurrected form, breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the remainder of the New Testament from that point is mostly just ordinary people doing the same stuff Jesus did. The apostles are speaking words of knowledge, they're casting out demons, they're healing diseases, they're praying open prison cells. It's ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the works of Jesus. We are a supernatural people. And discipleship is the journey of discovering and embodying that power. Teresa of Avila said, Christ has no body now but yours. Go out and be Christ's body to the world. And that's our call as a community of disciples in the city of Portland is to be his incarnated person, his presence collectively in the way that we live in this place. Now that being said, the most profound use of Christ's body was not opening the eyes of the blind or preaching to the masses or cleansing the leper. The most profound act of love was not when Jesus revealed God's uh, person by doing, it's when he revealed God's person by suffering. So there's also suffering love. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Sister Agnes Coons, inspired by Mother Teresa, moved into an Indian leper colony and taught the women there to weave. Now, leprosy is of course a skin disease, but what some don't know is that leprosy common, uh, commonly erodes the extremities of a person, so fingers and toes tend to go. Often, whole noses do as well. And then one day, Mel Murray, who is a fashion designer of, of the brand Join, which is a maker of like fine accessories that get sold in Western boutiques, but does fair trade work in the Eastern world, walked into Sister Agnes Coons's textile factory looking for a particular fabric. And these are her own words of what she encountered there. They were completely cast out with no rights. But inside the community, they were making beautiful things with their hands, though some of them were weaving with six or seven digits missing. Outside the door of their community, they had no value. But inside, they were incredibly valuable. And then Mel began to visit this textile shop frequently, not for her business, but for her soul because what she discovered quickly was that these, these men and women living on this, among these people working this job, they did not need her business. She needed their presence. Because it was among them that she met and discovered more of Jesus. See, the scandal of the early church was that they defined people by personhood, not by usefulness. And that was brand new in human history. The Greco-Roman world took those who were unuseful to society and cast them outside the city gate. That was the leper but it was also the, the sick and the widow and the orphan and the houseless. They banned them from participation in the society. We've removed the sting and made it much more subtle but we still order our society by usefulness today. In the modern world, We toss aside the easily overlooked or the not immediately useful. We unconsciously pursue self-promotion and self-fulfillment, not suffering love. And that's because suffering love tends to make no obvious impact. Suffering love does not win me an immediate return on investment. There is no big splash. There is no great story or bow to tie on the end of my sacrifice. Sister Agnes did not impact the culture. She set a table in the middle of an Indian village, so that anyone who want might come and taste. And that's what the church is called to become a taste. Set a table in the middle of Portland that anyone who want might come and taste. And here's what we discover when we live that way, is the self-fulfillment and the whole life that we might pursue in every other place is given to us as we give ourselves away. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it whoever loses their life for me and my gospel, they'll save it. Christ has no body now but yours, so go out and be Christ's body to the world. That is a commissioning that includes supernatural power and suffering love. And as the years of your one brief life fade, what will matter most profoundly is not your work or your accomplishments or your reputation or your perception. All of that matters But what will matter most is how you love the people you get to live your days alongside. All of our stories one day get weighed on the scale of love. And so what in your life right now becomes weightier on that scale? And what becomes lighter? Do your best to live today accordingly. That's how you do what Jesus did. See, the aim of our spiritual formation, it's not personal peace or a life of balance or an unworried mind or an uncluttered soul, not as an end in itself. The aim is to become a gift of love to others, to be poured out like a drink offering in the language of Paul. Spiritual formation is always for the sake of others. And something I've been personally challenged by and reflecting on a lot lately is this, that to paraphrase one writer, we tend to try to change our circumstances to avoid changing our character. Don't you find that we're forever future-oriented, always imagining a preferred set of circumstances within which we can flourish? Right, when I graduate, when I get through this busy season, when I get through this season of parenting, when I get married, or when I move to a different city, or when I move to a different neighborhood in the same city, or when I move to a different home in the same neighborhood, or when I am able to cut back on my work schedule to just four days a week, when I'm able to go back to work, There's always some future set of circumstances that we're tinkering with in our life where we can flourish. But what I've been challenged by and what discipleship to Jesus looks like to me right now is to walk through the temptation to play with my circumstances to the character that lives underneath those circumstances. Can I love, selflessly love my family members and my coworkers and my Bridgetown community and the neighbors on my block? And the parents of the other kids uh, at my kids' school at drop off and pick up and the people that I serve alongside downtown, can I love them right now the way Jesus loves them in the imperfect, always less than ideal set of circumstances that is my life? And my hope and my real belief is that if that's the question that I keep up front in my prayerful mind, then I can become aware of Jesus with me here and now. And I can become more like Jesus in the conditions of my life just as they are. And I can even do what Jesus did in the course of stressful work weeks and spousal disagreements and Thursday mornings when I didn't get enough sleep last night. And that's the invitation to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did, not in some distant future place, but in the actual place that you live in today. So this is the beginning of a teaching series that, uh, and practice that's going to cast vision for us as a church over the whole of the next year. A house of prayer for all nations. That phrase from Isaiah that was repurposed by Jesus, we're going to chop into three parts. And so in the months ahead, we're going to spend five weeks looking deep into prayer and five weeks looking deep into justice, discovering the interconnected nature between the two. We plan to introduce a daily prayer rhythm, reclaiming the prayer life of the early church and invite you to pray alone and then to pray together through prayer hubs scattered all throughout our city. And we plan to get proximate to the marginalized in our city this fall, uh, unveiling a, a vision for justice that we hope will guide Bridgetown for years into the future. All of that's coming and it's coming soon, but today we just start with a house remembering our identity as disciples, the order and rhythms and values that guide life in this house. And this is one of the reasons that we do a vision series every year is because we believe that the church is a family and that this is a unique family. And so when you walk into these doors, we want you to know who we are in the family history and, and what we value and how we live together. So if you're just exploring faith and you're not even sure what you think about Jesus and all this stuff, then I just wanna say welcome. You're so welcome to belong exactly where you are and to sort out your journey with Jesus alongside us as you go. But if you consider Bridgetown family, then I I also want you to know what it means to be a full participant in this family. And if there's resonance in you and you're saying, yes, I want that, then there's five commitments that we ask you to hold as a family member of this household. And they go like this, first, practice the way of Jesus. We ask that you would actually order and prioritize your life around these three goals be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And then, secondly, live in community. We organize our church around smaller Bridgetown communities that meet midweek in homes around tables all throughout Portland. Because the large gathering like this one is important, it's where we see and encounter new revelations of who God is, but it's around the table midweek that what we see is converted into practice so that it can lead to blessing. So if you're not a participant in a Bridgetown community, you're missing out on the best part. The way in comes through Community Basics, a course we run three times a year, it's coming up soon. More on that in just a second. If you're already in a Bridgetown community, then every fall we ask for you to reevaluate and recommit yourself to the way of Jesus with those few people. Third, gather on Sundays. We actually ask that you prioritize the Sunday worship gathering as a committed rhythm in your life. And I know you're gonna travel and all that stuff, and that's great, hope you have an awesome time. But when you're here in the city, we ask that you would make gathering together a committed rhythm because we actually believe we're formed by coming together. We are one church that has three gatherings. There's nine and 11 a.m. right here on the east side, and we also meet at 5 p.m. downtown on Sunday evenings. Fourth, serve. Most of what we do around here is volunteer run. It takes all hands on deck to be the church. But in particular, I wanna make sure that we reclaim the full breadth of that word service. So when I say serve, I'm talking about one of our serving teams here within Bridgetown Church or one of our justice and mercy partners in the city of Portland. So if you don't find yourself serving in one of those two spaces, the hope is that at the end of this vision series, you will be. And if you are serving, thank you so much. Deeply grateful. And then finally, give. We're a church in the most ancient sense and that includes being a people of generosity. We exist entirely everything we do on the generosity of this family and we give away 10% of every dollar given here to our justice and mercy partners so kingdom work can happen throughout the city. Now 10% or tithing, we, that we get that from the scripture, it's the biblical watermark. But if you're not giving at all, 1% would be a phenomenal place to start. Just start where you are. Or if you've been giving 10% for so long that it's an auto draft that you never even think about, maybe it's time to prayerfully consider giving over and above that biblical watermark to pursue generosity in your life. And look, I'm fully aware that this is the stickiest part for me to talk about as a lead pastor of a church in America at this time in history. I'm so aware of that. I'm also deeply committed to every last bit of the way of Jesus, and that includes generosity. I live it myself and I will never ask you to live something that I am not living myself. So here's the five commitments. Practice the way of Jesus, live in community, gather on Sundays, serve and give, and please hear me, this is 100% invitation. There is no PR, there is no spin. In addition, today I wanna introduce you to a new resource. The Bridgetown Discipleship Pathway. Now look, as a disclaimer, this is a linear pathway. And the journey of discipleship isn't linear, it's cyclical. We've already covered that. We wanted to chart a linear pathway as an act of love. Because we, like Jesus, want to be a people of a broad door and a narrow way. And so this is an attempt to take a cyclical journey and lay it out as linear as we can so that you can know exactly what the way into the life of this community is and you can hear us say, welcome, you're invited. So my hope is that you'll be able to find yourself somewhere on this pathway, identify your next step in the discipleship journey here at Bridgetown, and then take that next step. Now, let me walk you through it. The Sunday gatherings, the front door of our church, welcome. Welcome. You stepped into a home, into a house. And we want you to know who we are and who our rabbi is. So Bridgetown Basics is an informal, low commitment course that we're offering beginning this year every month to introduce you to who we are as a church and what it means to make this house a home. Alpha is an introduction to our rabbi, to Jesus, for those who are considering Jesus for the first time or reconsidering Jesus. Uh, And then, if you're somewhere in that welcome space, my invitation to you today is to take a next step in to make this place home. So, for some, that will come through baptism, which we understand as a symbol uh, both of personal allegiance to Jesus and a communal symbol practiced within a local community of disciples. For others, that's going to come through a new offering, the Spiritual Formation Basics course. A big question we've asked over the last year is this one How do we keep building on the same foundation? Because this church went through a five year formation journey called practicing the way. But we also know that statistically our church turns over by a third every year. So how do we make sure that year over year, our family history stays our shared family history? So what we did is we took this five-year journey called Practicing the Way, we condensed it into a nine-week course, and we're going to run it twice a year. So if you missed part or all of the Practicing the Way journey, or if you just want to go back for a refresher, this course is for you. And then finally, for some, this will mean community basics. Now, what you should have picked up on by now is that the artist formerly known as Basics is now three artists currently known as as. First name followed by basics. And the reason all of that has just been an attempt to broaden our front door and to clarify the invitation and the steps along the journey around here. So basics or community basics is now a two week course to move from home to family by placing you in a Bridgetown community or commissioning you to begin a new Bridgetown community. Bridgetown communities, again, they're the heart of this church, registration for that opens next Sunday You are invited. The end of this pathway though is not to be in a Bridgetown community. That's just the beginning of our mission. The end is to live these five commitments out over a long period of time in one place among one common, ordinary group of people. It's a long obedience in the same direction, to borrow a phrase. So can you find yourself in there somewhere? You know essentially where you're at? I can't tell, it's really hard to have that kind of interaction in an environment like this, I get that. You're invited deeper into this family, at your pace, in a way that matches your journey and the timing that fits your limits, you are invited. So we'll land here for today. One day, sooner than you think, you will wake up to discover that you have become a certain kind of parent, a certain kind of son or daughter, a certain kind of brother or sister, a certain kind of friend, a certain kind of coworker, a certain kind of neighbor. And it won't be your best intentions that choose that for you. And it won't be your willpower and it won't be your circumstances and it won't be a stroke of good or bad luck. It will be your rabbi. Do you know who your rabbi is? If you don't, that's a question worth spending some time with because whoever or whatever your rabbi is, it's forming you into its image right now. Now, we are a community of disciples intentionally and unapologetically lining up behind Jesus as our rabbi. Bridgetown Church is a counterculture in the city of Portland. We are a family marching to a different tune in the procession of another king in a city that we sacrificially love enough to lay down our lives for it or to put it more concisely, practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. That's who we are. It's what we're about. However stumbling and fumbling we may be, it's what we're about, and you're invited. You're invited, not to the easy and comfortable journey of anonymous church attendance and podcast consumption, but to the wild and unpredictable journey called discipleship to Jesus. You're invited. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you are invited along this journey that's got a broad door, a narrow way, and in the end, is the bargain of a lifetime.